This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab, for a Saturday, April 25th, 2020. A mere four months into the global apocalypse. Been an amazing ride so far, 2020. But I don't want to comment on it anymore because uh, I think we did it last show, didn't we? It's been three shows running. It's at the top of everyone's minds. Okay. Well, I, we we've covered that subject, and I think it's been thoroughly covered. It's true. It's true. I'm just glad that everything's up and running, and we can get together and have this show once a week. Yeah, the internet hasn't collapsed yet. That's true. I mean, we've had pretty much every disaster. We we have it, it's 2020, right? Most normal years get a new strain of the flu. Of the flu, of course. 2020 gets uh, the Chinese pneumonia coughing death virus. Uh, most years gets like wildfires in California or Australia, something. 2020 gets radiation-releasing wildfires in Chernobyl. Wow. Because regular <laughs> wildfires are not good enough for 2020. Well, and then there's the locust plague in Africa and the locust Asia. plague in Africa. Many years get like volcanoes, normal everyday volcanoes. 2020 gets Krakatoa because it's not enough to have a pilly little Hawaiian eruption. It has to have a headliner. 2020 is the show-off diva of years. Like I said on Twitter, if this year throws a zombie apocalypse, it's going to begin with zombie George Washington and zombie John Lennon singing a duet by the reflecting pool on the National Mall because nothing else will do. Nope. I'm looking Next forward year. to it. I'm looking forward to it. How much crazier can it get? I don't want to know. I, for one, welcome our new insect overlords. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, hey, welcome oh. back to the show, Brian. No, no, no. No. I've got a tweet I sent out yesterday. It's now at like 5,000 retweets and 10,000 likes because <sighs> they discovered that the most seriously ill patients don't have fevers. Yeah. Oh, wow. And in a follow-up tweet, the CDC has added six brand new symptoms to the disease. What, so, what is this? We have no idea what's going on. You know those free-to-play games? Like, uh, sure, yeah, they keep on doing new updates to keep getting players interested, right? 
new gear, new challenges, a new season. This plague is being run like a free-to-play game. It wants to keep your interest, so it keeps on coming out with patches um, <laughs> to add in new and more entertaining symptoms. And then, you know, they take away stuff in new patches, so apparently it's taking away stuff, too. I think the the folks who subscribe to the simulation theory of reality are absolutely loving this. Every Everything they've said is now vindicated. Like, look, it's a virus. It mutates week to week. Reality is not what you think it is. Yeah, I know that uh, Jim was comparing this to a game of Plague, Inc. and saying that it was uh, like being run by Kim Jong-un. And now, speak of the devil, we're trying to determine the status of his corpse. So he's involved in all this. <laughs> oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, Kim Jong-un, uh, we thought he was dead. Then the Koreans, the South Koreans said he wasn't dead. And now it turns out that he actually is probably really dead. Oh, no. I, that's news to me. That's horrible news. Yeah, so there's a, probably some kind of succession struggle in the North Koreans, who have a 10 million person army, by the way, Nuclear Excuse weapons. Excuse me, best Koreans. Yes. <laughs> Nuclear weapons and maybe ballistic missiles are getting uh, a brand new leader who may be even more unstable than the last one. So that's 2020 for you. It can't be, you know, just a normal transition of power in some third world country. No, no. It has to be sudden death of the North Korean dictator. Well, doesn't this kind of thing re repeat a lot? Like, aren't there usually crises, specifically plagues in the twenties of most centuries? And I, <laughs> I think it's some people chart this going back because last time in the 20th century, we had the Spanish flu. We had world war one. Right. Um, and then I think around like 1820, like there, there are a bunch of wars. And then also there was, um, I don't know if it was like a cholera or a smallpox outbreak or something. And then, 1720 same thing and oh weird. i don't know about that all i know is that 2020 is a show off of a year i mean again this just came out yesterday it did nuts all these things are just and it's only april it's april we've had enough catastrophes that a normal year would have been satisfied oh yeah uh hurricane season's coming up in a couple of months that's gonna yes. be good I had someone remind me the other day of Prince, you know, and I was like, oh, yeah, Prince died in 2016. And I'm like, I remember that year. That was a bloody year when, like, cool celebrities were dropping left or right. And then I was thinking, man, that seems so quaint and <laughs> pedestrian now. Yeah, I, I, I also yearn for the good old days when people just – passed away of natural causes and and strange events happened that were hard to predict instead of this nightmare world we have so hey speaking way, of this is us not talking about uh see we're not talking about the disease specifically we're just talking about how balls to the wall nuts this year is 
we have uh, we have only you to blame. Yeah, that's probably true. This is a hundred percent your fault. But speaking of twenty nineteen, see what I did there? Yeah. yeah. Um. Apparently, uh, some people in the pulp rev have gone back, uh, and there was a raft of articles in 2019 in various uh, magazines and stuff, uh, various online magazines of the literature type covering uh, fantasy and science fiction, who wrote about the pulps and how there was a burgeoning interest in the pulps and they were trying to get excited all of the uh, shall we say more trad pub people into writing stories along the pulpy vein and one of them they found yesterday did not even include a ritual denunciation of sexism and racism that's how hard they were trying to push the pulp. So, wow. Brian saw my follow up because the question was asked, you know, why why did all these come out? Someone asked, and John Mollison, of course, said, Well, it's us. It's the pulp revolution. Of course, that's why all these people are covering it because we came out, we made a lot of noise. Um, on a blog that people say they don't pay attention to, but everybody pretty much does. Um, and we're talking about the Castalia House blog. We were the most vocal, and again, I'm quoting from John Mollison now. We were the most vocal and visible um, post-puppy spinoff, um, also the most dangerous, and they know it. And then... Uh, Kitsun Chia, Benjamin Chia says, they're trying to control the pulp narrative and uh, pretend pulp rev doesn't exist. Instead of building on what we do, they want to position themselves as the prime movers and the leaders. And then Alexander Constantine uh, agrees with them. Well, this is my opinion. This was my response. So I'm going to read myself. I'm going to quote myself um, because when I want to go for the gusto, that's who I go to. <laughs> when we get our breakout star, when the pulp revolution gets its breakout star, whoever that is, whoever gets a breakout star that, you know, gets really big, it's going to wipe all these pretenders away, all these trad pub people and or Torlocks, whoever. Our breakout star is going to wipe them away. Right now, all these magazines are shouting in this echo chamber they've constructed. General audiences, normal people, don't know about these new pulpy writers or these, um, you know, anti-puppy uh, anti-indie writers who are messing around with pulps, general audiences don't know about them either. They're not going anywhere. They're not gaining any traction. So right now, 
we've got the pulp rev who is gaining traction just hasn't broke out to a general audience and then these other guys who also haven't broken out to a general audience and these other guys don't have the chops or the methods and values that we have. And I would also say they don't really have the passion or the love of the pulps that the pulp revolution has. The audience first ethos, the love of the audience, the putting audience satisfaction and enjoyment above any other aspect of the story that's our secret. And these other guys simply cannot think that way. That's not how they approach their material. They can't think that way. And without thinking that way, without adopting that ethos that we have, they can't win. Because even though we may have room and need to grow, we may need to practice and get better. We may need to get more people to come on board and write. We may need to grow and expand and get a bigger audience. We may need to be patient while we're doing that. Even so, we have a better ethos. We know that pleasing the audience, that Learning and practicing to please the audience is the best way to write good stories. And so when we get better and better and better and the audiences flock, and we've already seen this. We've already seen this happening with several Pulp Revolution authors. Um, you know, John Della Rose has done it and lots of other people have seen success, notable success doing this um so i'm not trying to paint the pulp revolution as a failure i'm just saying it's not as big as it will be and it's not as big as i want it to be and it's not as big as the authors want it to be um but it will get bigger and it will get bigger because we have the goals in mind that will help us build stories that will make the audience happy that will bring them joy or bring them fear if you're writing a horror story whatever you want to however you want to entertain them we're making stories that will entertain and, and even stories that will last and if we haven't done it yet we will probably soon so yeah i just want to jump in on that and second what you said because look at the state of old pub right now. Okay. As I recently wrote on my blog, they've got one foot in the grave and the other on a banana peel. So it's important to remember that old pub is not in the storytelling business. They're not in the customer pleasing business. They're in the lumber business. They control a paper distribution monopoly through brick and mortar bookstores. Well, those stores are closed now. Not only that, the printers are closed now. You've got LSE Communications, one of the two main paper providers for Old Pub, just filed for bankruptcy. The second biggest quad just shut down its book printing facilities. Wow. So, yeah, they can't 
get paper. They're being, they are being starved of their bread and butter here. So they can't get the paper to print books. They can't get printers to print on the paper and they can't distribute those books through their soul, through the soul, uh, the soul distribution center that they control because they don't have any cloud on Amazon. They can't control that. That's where we rule the roost. So they've already got a report. Uh, I think it's publisher's launch has an ongoing like spreadsheet of old pub books that have been delayed because they waited. They did not push back their publishing schedule to account for the, the pandemic shutdown. Uh, they, they were uh, asleep at the switch on that. So what's going to happen is uh, this fall, you're going to see bookstores when they reopen doing massive returns for refunds to publishers. Like you're, you're going to see like JK Rowling and Stephen King and James Patterson have the biggest returns and losses of their career. It, it's going to be a bloodbath. Oh, wow. Uh, and I mean, I'm not surprised that a modern industry uh, is so leveraged and fragile that this sort of delay is putting people out of business. But how is it paper? How, how is paper being so blocked up? We got all a lot of it comes from China. from China. Get out. Are we seriously getting our paper from China? Yes. Well, well, that's just one more industry that deserves everything it gets. Now I should say, I should say that I've heard some conflicting accounts on this. Um, so Beth Meacham, the tour editor who took to Facebook with just a meltdown, like a wall of text talking about how screwed they are, did say that, yeah, most of our paper comes from China and due to Trump's restrictions we and, and tariffs, we can't get it now. But I do know someone who says he works in the printing industry and said, no, that, that's not true. Um, Chinese, like only a minority of our papers source from Chinese sources, but there are more complex issues with like Y quad and LSC are in trouble. But the fact remains at least some of our paper comes from China and mm. the printers are in trouble. Uh, that reminds me, uh, last couple of years in my in the board gaming community, in in the circles that I run in, there's a lot of belly aching about the tariffs because just about every game's printed in China. Any of that complex uh, paper manufacturing, just putting together uh, even a board game with simple cardboard mm -hmm. components, just everything's printed in China, and uh, and everybody's belly aching that these. Uh, the tariffs would hurt the industry and raise prices. Now I haven't gone board game shopping in a while because uh, we're all sort of playing online games these days. But uh, yeah, I can't imagine I can't imagine the board game industry is going to look as big in the next couple of years. Yeah, and to amplify DW's point, I think what these rumblings about old pub authors trying to muscle in on pulver about is that is rats trying to take a rat line from a sinking ship. Like they are <laughs> trying to climb in our lifeboat. But well, I think the, 
I think I think the the metaphor falls apart a little bit because these folks, many of them are in fact writers, even if they're mediocre writers. And though uh, everybody's favorite punching bag, John Scalzi, ha- seems to have trouble keeping up a pulp pace. Uh, if, if a lot of these writers flex those muscles and and get get strong like you guys have, then you know they will be able to transition to a new market. And so uh, it doesn't seem to me as much of a rats. Well, yes, it's rats from a sinking ship, but uh, it's not like we have uh, domain. It, it's it's not like the the lifeboat is our domain. It's uh, it's it's just something that they are way behind everybody else on. They're going to bring all the same old problems with them, which is social justice. Uh, you know. Sticking in characters who the all the same problems that are clogging up Hollywood, all the same problems that are sinking TV shows, all the same problems that destroyed Star Trek Discovery and Star Trek Picard. Um, it's just they don't have the ethos to put entertainment above politics, so they're going to be producing the same old stuff that isn't selling as well as it has been i mean you can buy you can rig the um new york um times bestseller list by buying small numbers of books at a few stores but it's really difficult to rig amazon's bestseller lists which i'm on by the way Oh, yeah, this is a really good uh, opportunity to, to talk about your new book that you're yeah. here for. Go yeah, ahead. you guys gave me the, the perfect segue, and I agree with DW. John, I they are not going to be able to make the transition to indie because indie is about pleasing readers, and these old pub first puppy darlings don't care about that. They don't even necessarily care about money. They're fanatics that just care about spreading the social justice gospel. That's their end all be all. Well, they, I, I agree. I, about... I, I think I think they're gonna I think they're gonna fail in it because they don't recognize how important pleasing the audience is. But I mean, maybe this is an exception that proves the rule. But there are people out there uh, like Patrick Rothfuss who is uh, very popular, even even though his uh, his first two books sort of age worse and worse every year, but he's got a big following. He's, he's, he's very popular. If he had to go independent of tour and publish some stuff, he's got a built in audience. I think, I think maybe there's more people like that uh, than, than you want to give credit for, even if what they write isn't as engaging as your Nick Coles or your, Brian Niemeyer's or or whoever. I don't think Patrick Rothfuss or writers of that success level are the people who are transitioning to pulp. From what I saw in the magazine articles people have dug up, these are like young, unknown trad pub people who who are trying to make the transition because they're not finding success other places. Yeah, and 
I want to speak to the Rothfuss example. I mean, Rothfuss is a lottery winner. He's the guy who hit it big with his first novel, got a bad case of second novel syndrome, and really hasn't been able to recover from that, produce anything else. That's not how Amazon works. Amazon favors rapid release. It favors consistently delivering good content to the audience you want. So yeah, a guy like him, his install base will probably allow him to keep making a living. But like DW said, he's not going to have his publisher buying him New York Times bestseller slots. And his discoverability is going to go down because that we've seen that happen with sci-fi. Guys like Chris Kennedy and Richard Fox and Michael Anderley are eating old pub sci-fi authors lunch, even the big guys. And if you look at where the main revenues of an outfit like Tor comes from, it's not their new Darling Star office. Like it's not Scalzi. It's still Frank Herbert. Like old pub is still coasting on the, the classic like Campbell era authors. So I don't yeah. think, I, I don't think uh, guys like Rothfuss, I don't think their mojo is going to be enough to keep them at the same level on Amazon. From what people have said, and this is just a rumor. I don't have facts to back this up. And if I'm wrong, I, I welcome people to correct my misimpression. Um, but Tor is pretty much floating off of Robert Jordan and Brandon Sanderson right now. That's their profit center and everything else um, is loss leaders for that. Yeah, and every publisher is like that. Like um, The Handmaid's Tale, at least until recently, was like the, the number one best-selling science fiction book. And it's also why Tor is no longer the number one science fiction publisher because um, I think it's Harper Collins that publishes Handmaid's Tale. Like just because of that, because of the TV show tie-in, they overtook Tor. So like a Handmaid's Tale is outselling Brandon Sanderson and Robert Jordan. I mean, Fair. Oh, and uh, Raindrops in the chat corrects me. Rothfuss is with DAW, not Tor. Oh, okay. Thanks. All right, all right. You, you guys make a fair point. Uh, well, I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying you're wrong, actually. I don't right. I'm I'm not saying that Patrick Rothfuss could make the transition to Pulp. In fact, I'm saying you're right. He couldn't make the transition to Pulp. He's of a success level that he wouldn't even try, is, is, is what I'm saying. Oh, that's true. I mean, if 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 I could get by with con appearances and and playing D and D live, I'd probably do that too. Yeah, it, I always fall back on Nick Cole's prophecy, which I believe he made on this show at one point, that Old Pub isn't going to go away. It's just really going to contract. So you go from the big five to the big two or the big one, and they'll cling to the last vestiges of their monopolies in like Costco and Walmart and supermarkets. So they'll retain their Cadillac clients, like the, the guys like Rothfuss who have more of a vested interest in the prestige of being a real author than actually selling books and pleasing fans. They'll stick around. So guys like Sanderson will still be at tour, whatever they are when McMillan gets done reorganizing them and J.K. Rowling is going to be fine. They'll still be in Costco, but it's the mid-listers. It's the people like... Scalzi and N.K. Jemison, Mary Robin at Koal, like that class that are screwed by this. And they're the ones who are panicking. Fair. Um, 
this is why TradPub is in serious trouble. Um, long shot author, Jim Butcher, his, uh, his, uh, our, his name on Twitter is long shot author. If you want to follow him, he's got two, two Harry Dresden books coming out this year. Wow. Um, well, it's been a while, hasn't it? Yeah. It's been like four years. Wow. Um, and I just checked in on Amazon, the ebook price right now for pre-ordering is $15. Hold up for an ebook. For an ebook. Yep. That's absurd. It, it is. And it's because, well, let's wind the clock back to like 2008 when the DOJ was suing the then big six publishers for price fixing through the, the Apple store and old pub lost, right? Well, they then went to Amazon and whined and complained until Amazon agreed to let them out of the wholesale model where Amazon got to set the price of the eBooks and return to the agency model where the publishers got to set the price of the eBooks in the KDP store. So what do they do? They immediately jacked eBook prices up like sometimes to paperback levels, sometimes to hardcover levels because they control this paper monopoly and they tried to make ebook prices so unattractive that it would force readers to buy the paper versions that they controlled. And that is what's shooting them in the foot now because um, I, I see my buddy, author David Stewart in the chat here. David, a couple weeks ago, had predicted an ebook market contraction. And I agreed with that, mainly due to unscrupulous authors miscategorizing the books on Amazon. And a pulp archivist has complained that it's impossible to find a book you want just by searching KDP. And he's right. But then Corona Chan intervened. And so now no one can go to a bookstore and buy hardcover. So hardcover sales have collapsed. No one is commuting. So audiobook sales, which were overtaking ebook, have flatlined. So ebook is number one again. Wow. And yeah, an old pub can't adjust their prices fast enough. Even if they did, it wouldn't help them because ebooks have never been their main profit sector. It's been hardcover way, way out in front and then distant second place audio. Well, they've now lost their two biggest moneymakers and they're getting eaten alive by us in ebook. Oh Yeah. Yeah, all the uh, uh, Pulp Rev and all the other niche authors who just sling book after book after book, uh, they're they're cleaning up on Amazon using eBooks. Yeah, we're like one point five times bigger than old pub sci-fi media people, and I'm saying this across industries: movie people, TV people, music people. Uh, book publishing people, comic book people, they all got arrogant. And maybe it's because they were going through an easy period. Um, whatever the reason, they got very, very arrogant. And 
they uh, all of them started to engage in business practices that seemed like it was useful for them uh, because they were trying to force audiences to buy what the company wanted them to buy at the price the company wanted them to buy it. They weren't trying to supply what the audience wanted. They were trying to force the audience to buy what the company wanted them to buy. And then, which they got away with kind of for a while, but even while that was happening, they were getting away with it kind of for a while. Um, they were suffering problems. Their business models were clearly not working perfectly, and they were leaving a lot of money on the table, and their profit margins were dropping. And when this coronavirus hit, it just shattered them all. Uh, theaters, movie companies, Disney is hemorrhaging money. Um, music companies, uh comic book companies, comic book distributors, trad pub companies, printing companies, all of these people who got so arrogant, all of these people who got so um, convinced that they could uh, ignore the audience, that they could provide things the audience didn't want, that they could, in fact, directly insult the audience. Um that they could price things far higher than the audience was willing to pay, that they could survive that. We're finding out that everything people like me and us and similar people in other industries had said when we said, no, you can't do this forever. It's screwing you over. You need to stop. Well, they refused to stop, and now here they are. They're in deep deep trouble uh right. coronavirus has shattered them yeah and that's not the behavior of rational economic actors that is cult behavior cult behavior i i don't think that they're i don't think that there is such a thing as rational economic actors but that's neither here nor there i think that's a completely different discussion for a different time <laughs> i want to hear more about this cult oh this is actually a good this is a perfect transition to your book i'm asserting that all these companies are insulting their audience that they in fact hate their audience that's my assertion i'm asserting that well, that's, that's a bold assertion, Daddy Corpig. Why would you try to do business with and extract money from people you hate? Well, it is a bold statement, but it's true. And, I mean, why wouldn't you? If, if, if you're going to insult someone, why not uh, charge them for the privilege if they'll pay it? So the better question is, why would you pay to be insulted? Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah I don't know. I don't know. I, I must admit that I have seen a couple of the recent Star Wars movies, and they were pretty insulting to my intelligence. 
That was the desired effect. Improves your normal person. So congratulations, you you passed the pop cult void comp test. Great. <laughs> I'm a real human. There's a turtle walking across the sand, Leon, lying on its back. It's legs flailing, but you don't help it. Why aren't you helping it? <laughs> uh, <laughs> There's no, an no. issue of America Chavez lying on the sand. It's pages <laughs> fluttering in the wind, Leon, but you aren't buying it. Why aren't you buying it, Leon? <laughs> Let me tell you about my mother. Sorry. I went to a bad place. <laughs> Yeah, so yeah, the anxious. yeah, the cult behavior. Um, really, to boil it down, there is a hysterical death cult that has slowly wormed its way into control of all of our major institutions, um, especially our culture manufacturing ones. So Hollywood, um, old pub, as we've talked about, the big two comics industry, television. Pretty much everywhere, and they have repurposed these former entertainment companies into propaganda outlets, and that propaganda is aimed at demoralizing us, immiserating us, ultimately destroying us. And yeah, I mean the the money's an afterthought, but they'll they'll take our money for it, but mainly just because it enables them to continue the propagandizing. That's interesting, and it fits, and that's that's what your book is about, right? Don't give money to people who hate you. Right. I, I find that interesting, and, and of course you've been talking about it on your blog a lot, and, we, and we've spoken about it in person, but one thing that I haven't figured out yet, which is, do we have any clue why? why it's so important to, you know, wh why are those the goals? What, what What is the point of the death cult? Do they have a goal in mind? Or, or what? And, and is it, is it, sorry, and, and is it as a follow-up, is it a deliberate and conscious goal? In other words, is, is this an actual uh, cult or is this a description of the behavior and actions that we've observed in the past few years. You know, if you'd asked me like even a year ago, I probably would have said, Oh, it's more or less a, a metaphor, right? A cult is just a, a placeholder to evoke the kind of behavior we're seeing. But as I dug more and more into it and read this book, uh, no, it really is their religion or it's, it's more like an anti-religion because their fervor isn't for any kind of higher supernatural good, but it's for their own self-expression. And that's where their motive lies. Okay. Because the core belief of the death cult is that the individual self, the individual's self-expression is paramount. It is sovereign and nothing may impede it. Right. So any limitation on individual self-expression is by definition an external imposition and therefore a tyranny and therefore must be destroyed. And that includes truth um, and standards of beauty, I'm which gonna, is what go ahead. I'm going to interrupt because 
we have about 20 minutes left. And oh. um, do you cover this material in the book? Yes, I do. Okay. I want to, just for the purposes of time, skip past this part of the discussion, because I feel like this part of the discussion is kind of a preface to the actual core uh, of, or the actual point of the book. Um, and you can, you can correct me if I'm wrong, because there's a setup as to, okay, there is this large group of people. They have gained um, commanding heights of the culture. They've gained academia, news media, television, music, all the all the uh, institutions I mentioned. Um, and you can, this kind of belief system, this kind of philosophy, this kind of moral system goes by the names of secular humanism, goes by the names of critical theory, goes by the names of social justice and ages past that went under their names of or similar things that were closely related uh, in the core, though differing in details, went by the names of communism, uh, you know, fascism, national socialism, syndicalism. If you go in the past, they were championed by, uh, you know, uh, people who launched the French Revolution. Um, and so on and so forth. These kinds of beliefs, these kinds of behaviors uh, have been with us throughout the entirety of human history. Um, and I'm not, I hope this does not sound like I am trying to undermine Brian's points. What I'm saying is this is not a new thing. It has happened repeatedly and repeatedly. And we are unfortunately a culture where people holding these beliefs or people espousing this kind of anti-morality or absolute freedom from morality and judgment have gotten power and a great deal of power and a great deal of influence. So knowing that they have this power, knowing that they are using uh, Disney movies, just as an example, as propaganda, knowing that they're using the reading books that they're using to teach kids how to read in elementary school. This is not a hypothetical. Uh, I am, like many people in lockdown, I am uh, about seven feet away from my nephew as he's been learning reading. And so I've had to listen to the books that they're teaching him out of learning and their propaganda. Their, their propaganda, where the stories he's reading are not Jack and Jill went up the hill. They're not, oh, Tim and the dog chase, chase the ball. They're about how to be a responsible citizen and, and recycle and do this and that. They're, they're literally propaganda. It's, so, it's as old as, you shall not die. Eat this and you shall be as gods who know. So uh, these beliefs are ancient. And we just have a lot of people and, and they keep on coming back because they're based on intrinsic desires of humankind, just a religious philosophical point. But now that they're here and we have these institutions that are taken over by them, the question is, and, and this is where, you know, a lot of disagreements among those who oppose these can get bitter 
and can get protracted and long-lasting is what do we do about it? And Brian's written a book to support uh, his point of view, his solution to what uh, we can do about it. And even though I disagree with Brian in, in many respects, I think Brian so, uh, uh, absolutely deserves to be heard. And so I want to move to talking about his solution, if that's all right. Sure, it's your show. So the solution is in the title of the book. We just got to stop giving money to people who hate us. And that's deceptively difficult because a lot of people really, I, I don't want to sound insulting, but have nothing else. Like it's, these properties are their only source of joy. They have strong feelings of nostalgia tied up with these IPs, especially members of generation X and Y. So it can be, go ahead. And independent movies or studios can flip over control at the drop of a hat. Like you may have grown up on the Muppets and Jim Henson himself was a great person, a wonderful human being as far as I know. Um, and he made the Muppet movie. He was, um, you know, and a lot of other just delightful um things but then then it gets bought out by disney and so his old stuff is still his old stuff but now if you buy it you're giving money to disney again i'm not trying right. to have an argument with you i'm just pointing out yeah happen. yeah exactly and buying the old stuff which is often available secondhand is a great solution so you, know, you can go to used bookstores. You can go to secondhand stores. Like uh, I know in my area, we've got um, Mega Replay that uh, sells used DVDs and games. You know, buy, buy it in the aftermarket. Um, but then there's the Web Archive, which has more classic movies in the public domain than you could watch in a lifetime, even if you watched one every day. Uh, there, there's LibriVox for audiobooks. There's all kinds of alternatives that the digital age has placed at our fingertips. Uh, what about new stuff? How do you find... Uh, a lot of people like to see the newest and latest and greatest things. They want to talk about the hot new TV shows or or whatever came out in the theaters this year, something like that. What's, uh, do you have a solution for that? Yeah, I don't want to spoil too much of the book, but that the social proof angle is one thing I address, which is like, well, what happens if you're at the water cooler on Monday with your coworker and he's like, oh, you know, did, did you see Thor Love and Thunder? Well, that is a teachable moment, as we say. That's an opportunity to deprogram pop cultists. And the best response is just nonchalantly be like, nah, I don't waste my time with that anymore. Just hmm. Just if you turn the social proof around, flip the script. Uh, I'd like to say that that worked for me with Game of Thrones, but everybody kept watching it anyway. I don't know what to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there's only so much you can do, and you've got to look out for yourself and your family first. But uh, in, in terms of finding new stuff to enjoy, that's uh, a little more work. But uh, one thing you can do is if you go to Amazon and go to the Kindle store, you can do a search for free eBooks and you can do it by genre, like just add free because 
indie authors are making their books free all the time. And they're usually the first book in a series. So it's a good jumping on point. And that way you can support indie authors. And just in case that someone turns out to be a, a, a cultist, you got it for free. So uh, I guess it's, it's uh, one of those things that we like to think that we intuitively know, but do you have any ideas of yourself or, or shared in the book that on the a good way to detect cultists? Because it may yeah. not be obvious. Yep, I go into that in the book. Um, you even got the the notorious witch test in there, which is a <laughs> specific application. Like that's for wolves in sheep's clothing, who are like secular humanists or or commies or intersectionalists, as DW alluded to who cloak themselves in Christian morality. It's like that meme of, well, you know, we should do X because I'm pretty sure it's in the Bible somewhere. Well, no, I have nothing but contempt for your Bronze Age scribblings, but I'm just hoping if I throw it back at you, you'll do what I say. That's right, a, yeah. That's what the I love that meme. Works. That's a great meme. It is. Uh, it's a mini witch test. But then there's also uh, a pop cultist self-assessment and... I mean, honestly, one way to tell a death cultist is if they just shrink from the book, like a vampire from a crucifix. I mean, I even say at one point, like, yeah, I'm not going to worry about doing a death cult self-assessment because if you were a cultist, you wouldn't have made it this far. You would have thrown the book across the room. So, <laughs> But yeah, I, I give detection tools. That's cool. Glad you like it. Uh, yeah, because, and this sort of leads up to the question I wanted to ask, and I, and I really want to put you on the spot here because we've talked about a lot of this uh, just in conversation, as well as uh, you've gone over this stuff on your blog for a couple of years now. Uh, this, is, this has been one of the topics that you return to again and again. And so what I really want to know is uh, for those of us who follow you, uh, is this, uh, what, what is there aside from the discussions we've had already on the blog? What, what additional interesting information or value can we find in the book, uh, that now that you've sort of put it all together into a, a book form? Yeah, I alluded to it earlier, but one insight I had was that, uh, prevailing generational theory is wrong. So we usually talk about, uh, like baby boomers and millennials and zoomers and, and gen Xers. But what I found in my journey through pop culture and sociology as a whole is that we need a, a finer, more granular scale to accurately model people's attitudes and, and behaviors and, and reactions because the old 20 year model doesn't really make sense in the internet age, it's just not only is society moving faster, but the rate of the rate of change is accelerating. So like, it, it makes no sense to lump someone who, who experienced childhood in a pre 9-11 world, in a pre-internet level world, and categorize those guys in the same box with kids who have only known the forever war and were born with a cell phone velcroed to their hand but that's what like the, the broad millennial definition does so 
Uh, my buddy J.D. Cowan, another author in, in the chat here, did a lot of great work unearthing proof that, yeah, like up until like about the year 2000, like on, on television and in, in magazines and in popular media, you still had a recognized Generation Y that came after Generation X. Mm -hmm. And for a while there, X, Y, and the Millennials all coexisted and they referred to different cohorts. But then suddenly like a, a switch was flipped, they split up Gen Y and folded the older contingent into X and the younger contingent into Millennials. And it was done purely for marketing reasons. It was purely Madison Avenue going, okay, we're not sure how to market to these guys. So it's just but a cynical a, money. To but an, enough of them identify as X and enough of them identify with millennials that we can get by. Yeah. But then again, you run into these people all the time. who are like, yeah, I mean, people call me Jet X or, but you know, I, I was too young to see Star Wars in the theater and I never really got into grunge and I don't really get Janine yeah. Garofalo. And then there are people like, yeah, they, they call me millennial, but I have a work ethic <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not, uh, narcissistically self-entitled i'm incompetent and easily easily led so <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it's true it's true we have a type it's uh it's and it's fascinating uh, and have you done any and i love I'm, i love this digression sorry dw uh, have, have you done research into the decades before the internet age are are you how certain are you that culture is accelerating or is this perhaps something that's uh, that the distinctions are blurred over time. Oh dude, if you want proof that culture is accelerating and accelerating toward a cliff, um, I don't want to get too political here because I know this is a, a, a fun romp of a show, but just uh, in general terms, compare the positions of any Republican politician except for Trump today to the positions of like Obama or Nancy Pelosi in 2004. Uh, that's, that's fair. No, that's, that's a fair comparison. But, um, and my question is how does that compare with the rate of change from that point to 50 years prior? That's, that's the question I have. Has it changed that? Uh, has the, has acceleration always been, sorry, has acceleration been constant or is it, did acceleration go up as your, uh, asserting here and and i'm not sure we i think we i think we all intuitively i think you're right by the way i'm just i'm playing devil's advocate here i think right. you're right by the way I, I i think we all intuitively believe that acceleration is increasing but that could be uh, we could just be deceiving ourselves we could but again look at the cultural artifacts right so look at hollywood movies and how long certain genres Indian popularity like look at the western like look how long that reigned and then again like oh it's the 70s so we're just going to decree that westerns are over yeah yeah but look how long that that resonated with people um look at the building and to go way back look at the building of cathedrals which were if, if you could imagine a, a combination of like what, and I don't want to sound blasphemous here, but what like the shopping mall was to people in the eighties and the, the movie theater or like your favorite MMO is now combined with that religious experience. Cause they were, they were 
meeting places. They were places for socialization and, and culture. Those took a couple centuries to build sometimes, right? So that was a guy, the lead architect saying, okay, well, here are the plans for it. I'm never going to live to see it finished, but maybe my son will. Wow. I am going to jump in because we only have a few minutes left. Um, Please. And there's one point I want to make before we go. Um, so I'm going to give you a chance to make your last plea. That's it. You're That's on the spot. The setup. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Make your last plea right. in. in the hot seat. Yeah. You don't have to shell out your hard earned money to people who want you broke and miserable and your kids brainwashed. You don't have to worry about what other people will think, what your girlfriend will say when you admit, no, I don't want to see the, the live action like Mulan with Idris Elba as John Wayne as Genghis Khan, right? You, you, you don't have to. You can break free and you can have fun while you're doing it. Don't give money to people who hate you. All right. I want to talk about the post-apocalypse. This is just a supposition. Um, but it's a solid supposition and it's based on things we've already seen happening. I mean, things that are actually happening in comics, which may be happening in other industries on a big way. This economic downturn, we now have like 26 million people suddenly out of work. We've gone from 3% unemployment to somewhere between 16 and 20% unemployment. That's, you know, not quite the peak of the Great Depression, but we're getting up there. Uh, give us a couple of more weeks and we may either hit or surpass the unemployment levels of the Great Depression. Um, this uh, problems with getting stuff from China that's shaken so many inner industries, this sudden collapse, this black swan event that has kicked kick the supports out from underneath all these industries, this disruption to them is an apocalyptic event for the entertainment industries. I do not see an apocalypse for an America. I do not see an apocalypse for American culture. I do not say apocalyptic in terms of death or destruction. I'm saying an apocalypse for the entertainment industries. So, publishing companies, right? This is what we were talking about earlier in the show, are hitting an apocalyptic event. Comic book companies are hitting an apocalyptic event. Movie studios, TV studios, uh, advertising revenues are, are, and we didn't talk about this, but advertising revenues are down to nil. They're laying off. Disney laid off a hundred thousand employees uh that's six figures of people they let go unless the headline i saw was a typo a hundred thousand people let go from disney all right all these other movie studios are having a problem this is an apocalypse 
for the news media's apocalypse, for newspapers, this is an apocalyptic event. Who survives? Who thrives in the aftermath of an apocalypse? When the dinosaurs died, who thrived after? It wasn't the big lumbering creatures. It was small, smart, furry little mammals. When big events come and things get extinguished and sudden change happens, even those big lumbering old organizations that seemingly survive are probably going to be living on borrowed time and if they do survive, they're going to have to radically restructure and completely rethink their approach to how they do business. And I'm going to take it back to me and re-quote myself when I said they have to focus on the audience first. See, we're folding the entire show together into one one small singularity of, of knowledge and understanding. They have to focus on the audience first, but they can't focus on the audience first because it's entirely antithetical to this secular humanist, whatever this outlook you want to call it, death cult, whatever this outlook you want to call it, it is absolutely antithetical to it because they are too used to their pride, to uh preaching away at the audience to being arrogant and set apart so who's going to come in and replace them who is going to be suddenly given the chance to grow in all that space left over from the apocalypse small people nimble people people who can do who are willing to who are humble enough to serve the audience instead of trying to dictate to the audience. So all of this is guesswork, supposition, intuition, conclusions, predictions, a hunch, you could call it. I'm not seeing the future. But I'm thinking that after this, this disease has passed and we're getting back to normal, it's us rebels who are going to have the biggest opportunity that's ever been handed to upstarts in the 20th century and the 21st century to supplant the corrupt and arrogant older empires because we are willing to do and we're capable of doing and we're happy to do what they have forgotten how to do. So those of you in the audience who are listening who are writers, just think about it. Think about all the problems plaguing traditional media, not just trad pub, but traditional media across the board, and how much opportunity that gives us to step up and seize our moment, seize an audience, 
while they're fumbling around and overcharging and trying to keep from sinking and breaking up. The post-apocalypse is mighty good for the people smart enough to survive and smart enough to take advantage of what happens afterwards. Here, here. It's already happening. What do you think, Dornall? Sure. Sure. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Uh, yeah, I think that obviously the need to, what you said about serving the audience and, and knowing how to do that and being humble enough to do that. I think... Uh, obviously, that's the key to pleasing your audience, and it's a good signpost to go by as far as is this uh, a creator or a work worth following or worth putting my you know attention and money into or something like that. So who knows? Uh, it's it, it is a. I'll say your your vision, your intuition is consistent, and I don't disagree with uh, anything in particular that you said. So I think, well, I should say I should say I hope because I'm a terrible accelerationist, and and I would love to see the mouse burn. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's there's a lot of things I'd like to see burn. Uh, so that's I'll, not a good com fail, by the way. That's not a void comp fail. Thanks. <laughs> no, that's another void comp fail. <laughs> oh, is it? <laughs> anyway. Yep. Sorry. I, I I wouldn't mind seeing a lot of these industries, a lot of the death cultists, burn and and what comes after it. I don't know. Uh, I'm glad that folks like you are looking for the future and trying to make something of it, uh, because you guys and the Pulverive guys that we talk with often. Uh, I think I think they they've got the right idea. I think I think they are on that path, and so I hope I hope for success, and I I hope that there is a future for us and people like us, and and people who enjoy what we enjoy, and that we as a culture can uh, what's how should I put it? Slough off these uh, artifacts of nostalgia and 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 shared culture that. Um, it's just becoming more fractured. That's what I think. All right. We, Stunned them. Uh... <laughs> Stunned them. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're way out of time. Um, Brian Meyer, any last words? I'm glad there are guys like you out there too. Keep, keep fighting the good fight. And yeah, we're being offered a major opportunity and the future is unwritten. So luckily we're authors, so we have the chance to do it. Just, just grab it. Go for it. <laughs> well, you guys are authors. I, I It takes a lot of work for me just to put a D&D &D module together. Uh, but uh, this show is a ton of fun. I really enjoy doing this with you guys. And I appreciate everybody who's hanging around talking to us in the chat. There's been a really lively discussion uh, Brian, you, you bring an extra something to the, the crowd here today. And uh, thanks to everybody listening later. 
12 extra somethings by my count. 12 extra somethings. <laughs> Re record, record viewership for sure. Um, and uh, it's always good to have you back on the show. Come back anytime, even if you just need a break from writing and you want to shoot this, shoot the shit. Uh, really appreciate that. And, and Daddy, we're big as always. Uh, it's great chatting with you uh, week in and week out. But I am done for today. Okay. I want to say thank you for everybody who showed up to uh, jump in the chat. It's been a great chat today. And I have just, uh, fortunately, Brian and Toranal uh, were talking enough that I got to read through the entire chat today, which is kind of unusual. <laughs> <laughs> so I've been there. I have read every single comment today. Thank you, folks, for commenting on the chat. Uh, I also want to thank Brian for coming, uh, for coming on. Um, to talk about his book. And again, like I said, uh, I don't, I, I disagree with Brian in a lot of ways about the, the uh, thesis of his book, but then again, Brian and I agree in a lot of uh, things uh, that go into his solution. I disagree with his solution, but uh, we share a lot of observations about society. So I think his solution deserves to be heard. It deserves to have its hearing, um, which is why I'm really glad he, uh, he came on the show today. Um, and I want to uh, thank and praise my fabulous co-host, uh, Doranal, um, who uh, who does excellent interviewing duties. If you folks haven't paid attention, typically the person interviewing our guests most of the time is Doranal because he's really, really good at that. So oh, um, thank you. <laughs> I let him run wild with that because um, – and then I jump in at the end with a couple of, of small pointed comp questions and, uh, and it seems to work. So um, I likewise have had a really great day today. I hope that the ideas we've talked about, I hope that uh, my conjecture about the future um, proves correct. And uh, uh, we know that there is enough devastation to provide a little bit of space for people to start being more successful. And I'm just hoping uh, it, well, and certainly in comics, there's a big space uh, opening up if people can take advantage of it. I'm just hoping that uh, I'm just hoping that it's a big space for everyone else too. I want to. Sorry, I was going to say our boy JDA is uh, definitely grabbing that market by the lips. Um, remind, remind people that uh, this is Geek Gab. You can catch us on YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. YouTube.com slash Geek Gab. We go live every Saturday uh, about the same time, um, 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific, um, just about every Saturday. You can uh, also, we have a whole bunch of back uh, episodes there if you want to jump in and, and bask in the glory that is Geek Gab. Or if <coughs> YouTube is not the platform of your choice, you can uh, subscribe to the program on the Google Play Store, the iTunes Store, or on SoundCloud.com and listen to our show on the device of your choice. We want to uh, thank everybody for listening. We are. Signing off for today, but don't you worry, don't you fret, we will be back.